0: Welcome to the ITE Talks Transportation Podcast from the Institute of Transportation Engineers. Each month, we'll bring you conversations with thought leaders in transportation on the future of the industry. Thanks for joining us on the ITE Talks Transportation Podcast. My name is Bernie Wagenblast. This is the final part of our four-month series, Looking at Vision Zero. And this month's guest is Robert Wunderlich, Director of the Center for Transportation Safety and a research engineer at the Texas A&M Transportation Institute. Robert, thanks so much for being part of the podcast. Well, it's my pleasure. As I mentioned in the introduction, you're the director of the Center for Transportation Safety at Texas A&M Transportation Institute. There are several different centers for transportation safety in different universities around the country, each one with its own focus. What's the focus of the one at Texas A&M?
1: Well, we're really a multidisciplinary uh group that is uh, has several programs in various areas we do a fair amount of crash analytics to try to discover what uh the major uh issues are in safety particularly in Texas but we've worked uh, across the country in doing crash analytics uh, we have a group that uh, does human factors research, sort of the interface between man and machine and how people react to signs and markings and how they drive. Uh, we do a lot of behavioral research where we're both uh, observing uh, how people behave out on the roadway, whether they're wearing their seat belts, their cell phone usage, that type of thing. Uh, we have a group that's focused on youth transportation safety. We do a number of outreach activities, which makes us a little different. We take research research on what the risk factors are for youth, particularly teens, which is the program we started with, and we've determined what those are, and then we work with young people to develop programs. Uh, We're real proud of that program. It's called Teens in the Driver's Seat. It's a peer-to-peer program, so instead of people with gray beards like mine telling kids how to act, we show them what the risk factors are and they uh to a group of uh leaders in the school and then they start spreading the message uh and we have a uh, a center within a center uh called the Center for Alcohol and Drug Education Studies And that, uh, group looks particularly at impaired driving. So both, uh, alcohol, uh, illicit drugs and legal drugs and looks at the impacts on driving and what you can do with that. And we staff a number of, of coalitions, uh, in, uh, impaired driving, uh, pedestrian safety and motorcycle safety that are statewide coalitions here in Texas. So we have A varied group of researchers. We've got everything from human factors scientists to uh, epidemiologists working here. I happen to be an engineer, um, but I'm sort of in the minority in my group. So that's what we do.
0: One of the things that you're certainly looking at are fatalities on the roadway system. and, And on a national level, we've been seeing that that has been trending downward for several years. But In the last couple of years, unfortunately, things have reversed and have started to trend back up. Much of the increase is involving the vulnerable users on the roadways, pedestrians, bicyclists, folks like that. Help us understand a little bit of what's going on. Why has that trend reversed somewhat? Why, in your opinion, are these fatality types seeing such a steep rise? And what do you think can be done to reverse the trend?
1: Well, let me, let me start by talking about some work that we did in conjunction with the University of Michigan Transportation Research Institute and our friends and colleagues there. Uh, we were tasked through a National Cooperative Highway Research Project to look at the steep decline in fatalities which occurred from about 2006 or 2007 to about 2010 or 11. We had a precipitous decline in the United States, and we were tasked with trying to figure out what those factors were. And we looked at a, a number of things. We looked at spending on highway safety and on enforcement, and we looked at laws and the changes in that. We looked at economic factors, a whole host of economic factors. We looked at the role of automobile safety, uh and we modeled all of that and and what we found and in our insight that we really gained out of that was that you could not explain that decline uh from a decrease in traffic alone and and as people will be familiar the economy crashed during that that time it was a great recession and people lost their jobs and their houses and and those all have an impact on travel but uh, travel alone uh, couldn't explain uh, all of the decrease, because fatalities are really a function of risk and exposure. Exposure being how much we travel, the risk being the chance that you're uh, killed uh, in any given unit of that travel. We usually use vehicle miles of travel, and vehicle miles of travel declined somewhat during that period, but not enough to explain it, so that meant that risk went down and while we as we looked at that we found that 85% of the decline was associated with economic factors uh, really a pretty incredible uh correlation and 60% of the decline had to do with the unemployment amongst uh youth from 18 to 24 year olds uh so the mechanism by which that probably worked was that we uh The young people didn't have jobs, so they didn't have a reason to commute to and from work. They didn't have any money to travel, and and there is evidence from National Household Travel Survey that their amount of travel went down tremendously from the period of uh, looking at 2001 versus 2009. All of which is to say that we took really in the decline in travel, a very high-risk group because we know that 18- to 24-year-olds are way overrepresented in crashes and fatalities and injuries, uh, and particularly young men. And so if we take them and, and take them sort of uh, out or decrease their participation from an exposure standpoint, uh, fatalities went down. Uh, we also drank less. Uh, the The median incomes went down, so risk went down during that period. And at a certain point in time, uh, the economy started to recover. And as we came out of that, we uh, found that risk is staying relatively stable, but the increase in fatalities is being driven by an increase in vehicle miles traveled. So. At the end of the day, um, the better economic times means that we've got the riskier populations uh, traveling again. We also found a decrease in rural travel. In fact, during the recession, urban travel, as, as a general rule, was continuing to increase, and the decreases were mainly in rural traffic, which is a riskier um, driving environment. So overall, we think that we're being driven mostly by changes in exposure because we're not seeing big changes in risk. Now, one of the, as you pointed out, uh, pedestrian fatalities across the United States have been increasing, and, and our work in Texas suggests it's the the really increasing at a, a fairly alarming rate. There are some people that suggest that pedestrian risk is up because of the vehicles that we drive, but I can tell you this. When you look at the exposure, our growth in population is occurring in urban areas, and our growth in VMT and the number of vehicle miles traveled is also happening in urban areas, and you are increasing both pedestrian exposure and the vehicle exposure, and that combination, I think, explains a good deal about that. So if we're going to do something about it, because the other part of your your question was what can we do about it, we have got to find ways to reduce pedestrian
0: risk. What are some of the ways that you can reduce pedestrian risk?
1: Well, I think, first of all, we've got to find ways to provide convenient uh, and numerous opportunities for crossings that are controlled or signalized or provide a safer environment for pedestrians. Uh, If there aren't very good networks for pedestrians and they have to cross the street at places where there's a lot of risk, then we've got a problem. Our work in Texas indicates that much of the pedestrian uh, fatality and serious injury issues occur away from major intersections, in other words, unsignalized intersections or mid-block locations. And so we've got to find ways, and we know some ways. We, we, we've got uh, pedestrian hybrid signals, uh, the rectangular rapid flashing beacons have been proven effective by some of my colleagues here at TTI, and so there are methods that we can use. Uh, we also find that a good part of this issue is a nighttime problem, and uh, I think we've got to make sure that motorists and pedestrians both know that uh, just because a pedestrian can see the vehicle in the headlights doesn't mean that the motorist can pick them up. And I think we've we, in the idea that everyone needs to own their own safety, we've got to get pedestrians recognizing that they need to be uh, in expected places, and they need to be able to be seen, either through lights or reflective clothing and that type of thing. Uh, another area where we've really got to take a look at, because we do have problems at signalized intersections, is the complexity that the motorist is faced with. Uh, we have a lot of urban intersections that uh, allow permissive uh, left turns, uh, the right turns on red, and I think we're finding that That environment where we're expecting a motorist to make a judgment about whether or not they can make a left turn, whether someone is approaching, uh, and expect them to be cognizant of pedestrians may be overwhelming them. As I said, uh, you know, we do a lot of human factors work, and the humans have limited, you know, at some point in time their capacity runs out. I think you're seeing a lot of communities start to go back to uh, all protected turns at signalized intersections, and you're seeing people go to, to exclusive pedestrian phases, which are sometimes called barn stances, and that was a fairly prevalent thing back in the 60s and to the 70s, and we sort of got away with it, and now communities are going back to it. And I think the final thing with pedestrians is we've really got to recognize that uh, speed, uh, vehicular speed, uh, has a really significant impact on uh, pedestrians in a crash. And the higher the vehicle speeds, the more likely the pedestrian, and, and in some cases bicyclists and vulnerable users, are really severely impacted, and we've got to we've got to look at
0: speeds in in high pedestrian areas. One of the things that we've seen in many cities around the country is the concept of complete streets being adopted. Do you see that as playing a significant role when it comes to improving safety, especially for those vulnerable users that we've been talking about?
1: I'm not a big fan of complete streets because, in my opinion, when I learned traffic engineering many years ago, all users were considered and and should be considered in there. And and to the extent Complete Street says, look, you've got to provide for the mobility and safety of all of the users, whether they're um, whether they're a human in a car or a human on foot or a human on a bicycle or a human using a, a transit bus, you've got to take care of all the human needs that are, exist in your corridor. And many of the principles, I think, are quite sound and uh, can make a difference uh, with safety. But we've got to take a really uh, close look at uh, how speeds are determined and and how we control traffic in order to achieve lower speeds in our urban areas.
0: As we've done this series, we've featured several cities and states that are adopting Vision Zero goals, and they're adopting strategies designed to drive fatality numbers down. There are many others beyond those just that we featured during this series as well that are adopting Vision Zero goals. ITE currently has a Vision Zero technical initiative that you helped to develop for the web-based ITE Safety Resources Toolbox. Now, there's some debate among practitioners about Vision Zero and whether or not it's helping us improve safety. Some believe that maybe it's really just a a catchy slogan that uh, people can sign on to. It's unrealistic. It's unattainable. What's your view on Vision Zero? What do you see as the key strategies that will help drive down fatalities over time?
1: One of the things that concerns me quite a bit is that we are arguing about whether zero is practical instead of trying to figure out how to make people safer. Um, I think uh, this may be a heart and mind issue. In our hearts, we know that we would like to achieve zero. And I don't think there's uh, any problem with having an aspirational goal to say that we'd rather not have anyone lose their life uh, traveling in, in our cities and, and states. Um, and so if we spend a lot of energy arguing whether that's practical because you want to argue by your mind well I can set out some things that show that we'll never get there then we're using energy that we could use um, to really make things safer I, I don't know whether zero is possible but I do know that less is possible but we're not going to get to less unless we apply ourselves and believe that less is possible so if that's headed towards zero that's great if you don't want Believe that it's zero, you can at least believe that we ought to go and use our energies to make things safer. And we've got lots of techniques to do that. We know countermeasures that work. There's been a tremendous explosion of information about uh, countermeasures and, and countermeasures that engineers can use to make our roadway safer. They're in the crash modification clearinghouse. They're in the highway safety manual. They're in the toolbox, uh, resource toolbox that you talked about uh, that we helped ITE set up There's tremendous amount of resources that says if you do these things, you will have a reduction, uh, in, uh, risk and you will, you can make things safer. So I think what's important for our members and and, uh, and others working in the transportation safety field is to know that we can make a difference and that that's what's important to focus on and that there are a lot of things at our disposal, some of which ITE has made available
0: to the profession uh, to achieve that. As I was preparing for this podcast, I was looking at a video that you had done. Um, it was a presentation that you made at a TEDx talk about A hundred people a day dying on the roadways. Why do you think the public hasn't really grasped that idea and and become angry and insisting on actions being taken to cut down those numbers?
1: Well, Barney, I really wish I knew. I I really knew the answer to that. Um, I think that one of the problems is that a hundred people dying together uh, makes a big headline whether it's from a a transportation-related crash of an airplane or a train or a mass casualty um, issue, that makes the news. Uh, Unfortunately, we die in ones and twos, and we die um, in the rural areas, and we die in, in urban areas, but we die one or two at a time. Uh, and it's only when you add them up that you realize that this is a big uh, health issue in the United States. And I think part of it is that we as a profession need to make a little bit bigger deal of this, and we need to be out there saying this is uh, one of the biggest killers in the United States of premature death, and that it's time that we start focusing on it. And even if we can't Get the public necessarily to to understand. I think as a profession, we need to uh, look at it uh, very seriously and and do everything we can. Uh, part of my TEDx talk is. Uh, What are we going to do about it? Well, if we can't collectively come to this decision that uh, someone's going to save us, then we need to save ourselves. We need to work as individuals to reduce our risk. We need to work uh, in whatever we do professionally to reduce risk for our fellow travelers. So. I'm not sure we're going to get to the point where anybody recognizes uh, quite the magnitude of this. But it doesn't mean that we can't act individually as long as we recognize it ourselves.
0: You've talked today about how speeds play a big role in fatalities on the roadways, again, particularly for vulnerable users. Setting appropriate target speeds and better managing speeds has been something cited by many Vision Zero advocates as being critical to reducing the number of fatalities that we're seeing, especially in urban areas. How do you think the transportation community can best make progress in this area?
1: Well, I think there's a couple of things. I I think we've got to realize, and there's a a technique that we've been using for for many years uh, to set speed limits. And it's a measurement, uh, it's just a statistic, but it's the 85th percentile speed. Uh, and the idea is that people will pick a reasonable and prudent speed based on their perceptions of risk and mobility. Now they want, people want to get as quickly as they can from one place to the other, but they realize that there's some risk, so they have to temper that. And that calculus is made, and then you end up with a statistic called the 85th percentile. Well, I think think as professionals, we need to realize that there's a value judgment inherent in using the 85th percentile, and that is that only the motorists, only the users that are in vehicles make that decision. So none of the needs of our other users, we were talking about complete streets, like pedestrians or bicyclists or people that are on transit and need to cross the street once they've been dropped off, none of those considerations are made in the measurement of 85th percentile so i think it's a very legitimate thing to say we want to create an environment where the where the true consequences are are lessened we've reduced risk because people are not driving uh, at the speed they determine is is at their risk threshold but what other people do and it's hard to get it's hard to have the bicyclists and pedestrians and transit users vote, so I think as professionals we've got to to sort of stand up for them now, that's just one side, so I think it's legitimate I think the first thing is it's legitimate to say there should be a target there can be a target speed now, setting a target speed and achieving a target speed are two different things, and I think you know, if I, if I want to talk to, about my Vision Zero colleagues, sometimes they believe that just setting it and just saying, okay, it's 30 miles an hour through this area, uh, is enough. And my experience as an engineer and an urban traffic engineer for many years suggests that's just not so. Uh, you've got to be able to achieve it. And I think the central issue for Transportation professionals as we go forward is how do we put in features along the roadway that help us achieve? In other words, make the motorists perceive the risk or perceive that this is a place where they should be driving the target speed. And we don't have just an unlimited toolbox to do that. We've got, I think traffic signal timing is one place where we could make a big difference. Uh, I think we've proven things like roundabouts tend to, to mitigate speed. Uh, there may be other features, uh, how close uh, things on the side of the road are, what the friction is with with other things can make a difference. But, but the science of that is limited, and I think as a profession, uh, we need to work on measures that will do that because at the end of the day, you've got to have that statistic, that 85th percentile, pretty much match or be close or less than your target speed. Because if you just set a speed and say, I want people to drive 30, and the motorist doesn't perceive that they need to, and you've got signs everywhere that say 30, but the motorists are driving 40 and 45, we haven't achieved much. So only by working to put in measures that actually result in the target speed, are we going to be able to do anything? Just saying it and setting it isn't going to do much, and the challenge for engineers is to sort of change their mindset into, yes, setting a target speed is a legitimate way of going about it because we need to consider the impacts on all the users. But the second thing is really getting to the point where the final result is that people are driving at that speed. And there, there's where there's a gap right there. There are people that are trying things and some are having some success and we need to catalog those, uh, and see if we can't duplicate that and use all the tools in the toolbox to achieve it.
0: Talking about that, you were a past international president of ITE, and I would imagine in that role you had a multinational perspective on many of the safety issues that you're dealing with today. Are the challenges pretty much the same around the world, and do you think enough is being done to share information and lessons learned on an international basis? Well, uh,
1: people are people, um, as it turns out. Uh, I think there are uh, places in the world that we can learn a great deal from, If you look internationally, you can see that uh, in certain countries, uh, the philosophies are a little bit different. Uh, I think Australia, New Zealand, uh, several European countries, probably the UK as well. And, yes, we have some things to learn. There are things in the United States that work a little differently. We tend to have a very decentralized Governmental structure, and that's true, particularly when it comes to transportation policy, because you can look at some countries, and they, on a national level, you know, Sweden, for example, has a vision zero philosophy at a national level. Um, the United States is a little different than that. We've dispersed our governmental authority; uh, the states have certain things, the national government does certain things. I think in the environment right now, you're seeing that the the, the federal government is probably less um uh, likely to take action, uh, so yes, there are things that we can learn because the technical aspects of it are are very similar from one place to the other. I think there's a real challenge with public acceptance. Um, you know we've got people that are advocating things that go beyond perhaps what the all of the people in the public would be in favor of, and I think there's some uh there needs to be some outreach to gain some consensus on some of those things we've seen uh in the past sometimes backlashes against neighborhood traffic control uh and 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 programs like that so i think it you've got to move carefully and that's the challenge of the urban uh, transportation engineer they work in a political environment and um They've got to take into consideration uh, all of the users and the political environment. But certainly, there are things that we can learn. And in the ITE Safety Resources Toolbox, we tried to capture... Uh, practices from other countries, and there's a way to search even if you want to look uh, at a particular country, you want to look at things from outside the U.S., there is a search capability to do that. Um, I think we need to have all the ideas, and I think you can look at that resources toolbox sort of as, a, as the idea catalog. Um, just because somebody else is doing it doesn't mean you ought to do it, but, it, but, but knowing about it means you can at least consider it.
0: Well, you've been listening to the ITE Talks Transportation Podcast. Our guest this month has been Robert Wunderlich, the Director of the Center for Transportation Safety, as well as a research engineer at the Texas A&M Transportation Institute. Robert, thanks so much for sharing your expertise with us this month. Well, it's been my pleasure.